One of the defining characteristics of music is its intangibility. The non-materiality of sound enables its astonishing mobility, which in turn often leads to various acts of adoption, adaptation, and appropriation. From racialized performances of African-American musical traditions by black-faced musicians in 19th and 20th century America, to adaptations of a European Protestant hymnody among Pacific Islanders, to the global revival of Jewish klezmer music in the past few decades, musical styles and performance practices freely move within, beyond, and between diverse communities. As Magdalena Walagorska, author of the book Klezmer's Afterlife, points out, music is a site of communication and a contact zone. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. In this episode, we talk with David Kaminsky, whose article, Just Exotic Enough, was recently published in the journal Ethnomusicology. In his article, David interrogates the discourse of two Swedish, non-Jewish chamber klezmer bands, drawing out the complexities of heritage, identity, and cultural ownership. As a musical tradition cultivated by Jews in the East European diaspora, but now widely played by both Jewish and non-Jewish musicians throughout America, Europe, and elsewhere, klezmer has specific interest for David, who self-identifies as an American Jewish scholar. Here's David. I was working, volunteering at a, a world music summer camp in in Sweden, and uh, this woman came in and taught what she said was a klezmer tune, and then didn't mention Jews. It was it was this sort of um, uh, ninety minute session where she taught this tune uh, in this educational context, uh, and said, you know, this klezmer is from Eastern Europe. It was actually an Israeli tune, um, but it's sort of it's a tune that's uh, entered into the European, the new European klezmer repertoire. And um, so she said, you know, this is from Eastern Europe, but she didn't mention Jews. Earlier, um, I had been studying folk dance pedagogy at a school in Sweden, and um, a pretty well-known music scholar, I don't know if you'd call him an ethnomusicologist or if he uses that name, but he's a folk music scholar, uh, came in and, I don't remember the context, but he said, the, the Roma have no music of their own, um, because, you know, everywhere they, they, everywhere they go, they play the music of that place. The logic of that statement connected to the logic of, of the sort of the absence of the mention of Jews and the mention of place uh, as klezmer as, as is from Eastern Europe, right? It's not from a particular group of people. Uh, I thought of that sort of linking to this, the, this Herderian logic that, um, that drives a lot of the, the way that people think about folk music in, in Sweden and elsewhere. Um, and so that was very, both of those things were very disturbing to me. Um, and this is this sort of basic philosophy is not only basic to folk music, but also, I mean, like a lot of anthropology, right? Individual groups of people are have their own sort of character and, and identity uh, and language and traditions and all those sorts of things. And that's and there's value that's ascribed to that. Uh, and that value, because of the sort of political element, is also associated with place. 
talking about Hedarian logic, David is referring to Johann Herder, an 18th century German philosopher whose work is regarded as foundational in the emergence of modern linguistics and cultural anthropology. His writing on the concept of folk and nationalism is especially influential on political and cultural theorists today, and continues to shape discourse on race, ethnicity, and national identity among contemporary scholars. Herder has been widely criticized for arguing that social groups are solely defined by a common language and culture, tying ethnic identity to geographic territory. It becomes problematic when you have groups of people who don't have a particular place, right? Because then when your culture and music identity is the place that, they, that that group of people grew up, um, then if you don't have a place, then you don't get to have those things, right? And so that's the, that's the underlying logic there. Uh, and I guess what's, what, of course, what's really problematic about that is, is that it's also the underlying logic that's, that, that's um, you know, Wagner's Judaism and music and, uh, and uh, national socialism, right? Often regarded as one of the great German nationalist composers, Richard Wagner's notorious anti-Semitism is rooted in his writings, particularly his essay Judaism and Music, which lays blame for the banalities in German music and culture on adulterating Jewish influences. During the Third Reich, his operas, which some scholars argue espouse anti-Semitic ideologies, were appropriated by national socialists, enmeshing Wagner's music with Nazi atrocities against Jews. People who are playing klezmer music in Sweden, for example, who are interested in the shtetl, um, maybe aren't being that empathetic, right? Because they're, they're interested in this sort of this mythified, no longer existent Jewishness uh, and mourning its loss. Um, but aren't actually necessarily being particularly empathetic with Jews of the present day. Um, whereas people who are actually interested in Jewish culture today, uh, who are playing klezmer music, might be more empathetic in that way. I think that's probably my experience. That and, and I get at that a little bit at, at sort of my, in the introduction of this article that I'm, I work with a lot of people, and there were some who we're actually quite interested in Jewishness, sort of modern Jewishness and Jews today, um, and who I found to be much more sort of sympathetic uh, to... And was, the, 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 those are the people who also didn't say the really problematic things, right? While conducting interviews with Swedish klezmer musicians, David found that non-Jewish musicians were often granted greater authenticity than American Jews performing within the klezmer tradition. In his article, David relates that one of his consultants felt that freedom from the weight of Jewish tradition allowed him to make better klezmer music than many Jews could, a perspective that David challenges as both problematic and lacking empathy. This is a very specific uh, context and a, and a very specific phenomenon uh, on, on the sort of the micro level, but but you can see people doing this all the time, and and I think that's that's a lot of what that conclusion is all about is a, is that, that none of this is actually unique, uh, and the introduction a little bit too, um, that my analysis is, is uh, of, of what's going on with klezmer music, music in Sweden is actually 
I think similar things are probably happening with the Klezmer revival in Europe in general. The Holocaust obscures that a little bit in Germany and Poland, right? That I, that I don't think it's entirely about the Holocaust there. I think it's obviously that's that's always going to be an issue there. Um, but there are these other things that are happening that are about present-day anxieties about Middle Eastern immigration um, that are certainly highly relevant in Germany. I guess what it is is that the concentration has been on Jews instead of Germans, right? When you want to study appropriation, if you want to use that word, uh, the the people of interest and the music, uh, the, sort of the, the, the cultural context that's, that's of interest is that of the appropriators and not necessarily those who are being appropriated. Um, if you're interested in looking at power dynamics, right? Um, and so, in the same way, it, the uh, if you're looking at klezmer music in Germany, it's about Germans. It's not about Jews, right? And so you, ne you need to look. You need to be looking at what's going on with Germans, even even though like a lot of the sort of the critical scholarship has come from Amer American Jews, and so you get that perspective. One reason why my piece might be slightly unusual in that it's and how critical it is, is that um, I'm very sort of conscious of the fact that I'm not d dealing with the same legacy of colonialism and imperialism that a lot of other uh, ethnomusicologists do deal with because they're because I'm because basically I'm working in Sweden, which is which has not been colonized right ever, <laughs> uh, and um, with basically with middle class white people who are not. We, we, just, we just don't have that legacy of colonialism and imperialism with them. Uh, and so that power dynamic isn't there in the same way that it is in a lot of the other places. And so that's, that becomes less of a barrier. Part of what I'm trying to do is to look at it from the other angle and seeing what is it doing with this other, for this other group of people, right? Motivated by my own sort of uh, position as an American Jew who uh, is uncomfortable by what's going on, but then also trying to interpret what's happening in such a way that... Um, that I'm getting an understanding of what it's doing for this other group of people. People not just trying, in other words, not trying to make it about myself. Sweden's liberal immigration policies and robust welfare system helped establish it as a model nation for European multiculturalism. Following the 2013 riots in a heavily immigrant suburb of Stockholm, Sweden, as with other European countries, faces increasing complexity in maintaining its multicultural image. Just exotic enough is the term David says was used by several non-Jewish Swedish klezmer musicians to describe the music they played. For David, given the socio-political context of multicultural Sweden, this phrase suggests that klezmer music is used as a kind of proxy for Middle Eastern culture, Middle Eastern enough to suggest multicultural engagement, yet European enough to be claimed as their own. David Kaminsky is an assistant professor of ethnomusicology at the University of California, Merced. He's conducted fieldwork on Swedish folk music and dance, and his research considers issues of cultural ownership, gender and sexuality, and national identity. His article, Just Exotic Enough, Swedish Chamber Klezmer as Post-National World Music and Mideast Proxy, can be found in the spring-summer 2014 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Alyssa Bovnet and Brianna Glenn, consulting editor, Harry Berger, and our advisory board members, Portia Maltzby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, Leon Garcia Corona, and David Kaminsky. 
who also served as our guest for this episode. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SEM President Beverly Diamond and First Vice President Margaret Sarkissian and SEM Executive Director Stephen Stimpson. Music for this episode was performed by the Java Jews, the originators of highly caffeinated klezmer. Learn more about the Java Jews, including upcoming performances near their hometown of Des Moines, Iowa, by connecting with them on Facebook. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology, with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. 